Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our day to do breathing mindfulness meditation together. This is our group learning program where on Sunday and Wednesday, we get together to learn and practice the teachings of the Buddha. On Sunday, we have a talk about a chapter in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. And on Wednesdays, we get together in order to do meditation. Typically, we'll do either breathing mindfulness meditation or loving kindness meditation. And then there's some occasions where I teach Buddhist chanting as well. So I'm really pleased that you decided to join for today's guided meditation. I'd like to invite you to pull up a cushion or a chair, whatever it is that you like to use in order to meditate and make your lower body comfortable. If you're on the floor on a cushion, you probably have your legs crossed, but be sure they're not too tight because that can inhibit the circulation and make it painful for you to actually meditate. So if you just kind of have a loosely crossed legs, that would be best. If you're in a chair, you probably would like your feet to be either flat on the floor or crossed at the ankles. This practice is not about everyone doing it exactly the same. It's about finding what works best for you. So find the position that's working best for you and just make your lower body comfortable. Your upper body should be nice and erect. This helps to keep the mind active and attentive. Whereas if you were slouched like this, the mind would have a tendency to be sluggish during meditation. But we would like the mind to be very active and attentive, alert, so that we can train it. So you'd like to keep the upper body erect. The hands and the arms should be nice and comfortable. Gautama Buddha or the Buddha placed his right hand over his left with his thumbs together and then this goes into your lap. Or if that's not comfortable for some reason, you can place your palms on your thighs or your knees if you're in a chair, maybe on the armrest of the chair. Essentially, your lower body and your hands and arms should be just completely relaxed as if they don't even exist and your upper body should be nice and erect. From here, you would like to just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Have some nice, steady, natural breaths. Breathing in through the nose, experiencing the full breath and out through the nose. Your breathing may be different than the guidance that I'm providing, and that's okay. This is just a reminder for you to take a nice breath on the inhale 
and the exhale. Experience the full breath, just a nice, natural, steady, consistent breath. Almost like you're experiencing each individual molecule of air. Breathing in. And out. Just focus on establishing a nice, steady, consistent breath. I'm going to do some chanting just to ease us into meditation a little bit. And then I'll be back with some more guidance to help you through your meditation. If you know these chants, you're welcome to chant along. Arahang Samma Samhoto Makawa Potang Makawanang Apiwate Ami Sawakato Makawata Tammo Damang Namasami Sopatipano Makawato Sawakasanko Sanghang Namami Napmorhasabhakawato Arahato Sumasamputasa Napmorhasabhakawato Arahato Sumasamputasa Nap more her sap, hako ato. Ara hato, some samputasa. We cha charanang samuno sakato roka vito anu tero purisa namasati satatawa manu sanang Puto Pakawati Okay, you should have a nice steady breath breathing in through the nose and out through the nose Breathing in
and out. As you're breathing in, focus the mind on the breath, the present moment. Fixate the mind on the sound of the breath coming into the body or the sensation of air moving into the nose. And then on the exhale, continue to focus only on the breath. Breathing in and out. The breath is the present moment. The mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy when it's in the present moment. Wherever you notice that the mind has moved off the breath, whether it's to the past or to the future, cut that off and bring the mind back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. If you notice the mind is off the breath, lost in thoughts, ideas, perceptions, anywhere the mind wanders, as soon as you notice that, cut that off, let it go, and bring the mind back to the breath. No need to label anything. No need to judge what happened. No need to feel guilty or shameful. This is just the unenlightened mind doing what it does. It's longing, it's yearning. So just cut it off, let it go, and bring the mind back to the breath. Breathing in. and out. Breathing in and out. During meditation, the mind should be active, attentive, building mindfulness or awareness of mind so that whenever the mind is aware, that it's off the breath, you can then apply right effort to cut that off and let it go, bringing the mind back to the breath to develop right concentration, focus, clarity of mind, breathing in, and out. Breathing in and out. We're not attempting to eliminate the thoughts. 
what you're doing is you're building awareness of mind to be aware where the mind is that's right mindfulness and you're developing the ability to cut off and let go practicing non-craving non-desire non-attachment over time in multiple training sessions you'll build the ability to let go having awareness of mind and then letting go very easily by just focusing on breathing in and out I'm going to be quiet and let you do this work this is real work that's why you need to stay attentive and alert during the meditation actively observe the breath breathing in and out and wherever the mind is not on the breath the present moment just cut it off and let it go and come back to the breath you have nowhere to go there's nothing to do no one needs you right now just focus on the breath breathing in and out
now we get together each Wednesday like this in order to support each other and encourage each other along the path in developing our meditation practice and on Sundays we get together to learn the teachings and here I always spend some time just giving you guys a chance to ask any questions that you would like to ask related to the path to enlightenment whether that has something to do with meditation or anything else along the path any of the teachings that you're learning from the resources that i provide or anything else that you would like to discuss the way that you get your questions asked is you can put those into the comment section of facebook youtube or zoom and our moderators will see that and make sure your question gets asked during the class if you're in zoom you can raise your hand electronically and ask your question or any follow-up questions electronically as you heard me discussing as we did meditation and the guidance that the goal of meditation isn't to eliminate the thoughts. 
What you're actually doing in this meditation is you're developing awareness of mind so that that then benefits you in daily life, that you're more aware of what's going on in the mind, any thoughts, any feelings, any ideas, any perceptions, any decisions that you're making. You have this awareness of mind. And what you're also doing in this meditation is training the mind to let go so that you can cut off and let go of any thoughts, ideas, or perceptions that you're having during meditation. And where this helps you is when you're outside of meditation and there's something that has triggered one of your craving, desire, attachments with your mindfulness or awareness of mind and you observe irritation or annoyance or guilt or shame or fear or sadness or anger or boredom or loneliness or even happiness, excitement and elation, wherever you notice these feelings arising, either pleasant feelings, painful feelings or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, when you observe those arising in the mind during your daily life, you then have the ability to cut it off and let it go. And that helps the mind to no longer base its inner feelings on impermanent conditions. Because in the unenlightened state, when the mind is untrained, it's going to experience happiness, excitement, and elation, or thrill, euphoria, based on some impermanent condition. And that's dangerous because as long as the mind is doing that, it's welcoming in and inviting in these painful feelings of anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear. And wherever you notice those, you cut those off and let them go. And then if you notice boredom or loneliness or shyness, resentment, jealousy, any kind of dissatisfying, displeasing or despair in the mind, you observe that with awareness of mind or mindfulness. And then once you do, you apply right effort to cut that off and let it go. And you cut this back closer and closer and closer till eventually you're able to notice just bodily sensations before they actually become feelings in the mind. You actually notice just the bodily sensations of anger. You start noticing this heat or this sharpness starting to arise in the body and you can cut it off there and let it go. Or with happiness or excitement, you kind of notice the bodily sensations of that coming on and you cut it off and let it go or boredom or loneliness or any of these other discontent feelings. And by cutting it off and letting it go, you're doing what the Buddha described as obliterating it at the stump. And by doing this, the mind becomes more and more trained where eventually you get to the point where these impermanent feelings no longer arise, that the mind no longer bases its inner feelings on these impermanent conditions because it's been trained so well that it submits and it stops basing its inner feelings on these external conditions or any kind of other impermanent conditions that might be arising. And then as you do and you clear that pollution of craving, desire, attachment out of the mind, then the mind moves in and kind of blossoms where you experience this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy all the time because it's no longer basing its inner feelings on these impermanent conditions, that instead there's just always joy there, always. It's so easy to smile in the enlightened mental state or as you're even getting glimpses of it. 
The mind is just always peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it's been so trained that it no longer bases its inner feelings on these impermanent conditions. So you don't experience this up and down and up and down and up and down. The mind is just perfectly in the middle, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, and it's been optimized. This is what the Buddha talks about as the middle way. If the string's too tight, the instrument doesn't play beautiful music. Or if it's too loose, it doesn't play beautiful music. The mind's the same way. If you're holding on to something too tight, it's going to produce discontentedness. But also if you're kind of lackluster and not really paying attention to what's going on, that's going to produce discontentedness too. So the mind needs to be attentive, alert, but also relaxed and calm. This is the enlightened mind. It's attentive and alert. So it has awareness, but then it's also relaxed and calm. And this is what you do through the training of meditation. And then you carry that with you into your daily life so that then you can apply this in your daily practice, along with all the other steps of the Eightfold Path. So let me open up to any questions that you guys have related to meditation or anything else along this path. Hi, David. You were just mentioning the discontent mental states. And I was wondering if we feel anger or we feel impatience, but we don't allow that to carry over into our actions. Is this a natural progression of the path? Is this a sign that we're on the right track essentially? Yes, I call this being quietly frustrated that before you were on this path, you didn't know why your mind was angry. We kind of blamed it on other people. We didn't know why we were impatient. We just kind of blamed it on nothing to do or something like this, or somebody was too slow. So we're impatient. We kind of blamed it on other people. And we might have even talked harsh with people. We might have blamed them for causing us to be angry or causing us to be frustrated. Or we might have blamed our partner that we're lonely because they're never home with us or something like this. But once you learn this path and you start understanding things like right view, that you're actually causing all your own discontent feelings. You understand right intention, right speech, right action. You start training the mind to no longer think in the way that we do in the unenlightened state. We understand through wisdom that we're causing our own discontentedness. So we no longer speak harsh and aggressive or argumentatively with people, blaming them for our anger. So if you're noticing anger arising, And in the past, you might have outwardly lashed out at people for the anger, blaming them. But now instead, you're realizing that it's you causing that and you're choosing to remain quiet. But the anger is still in there or the frustration or the impatience is still in there. This is what I call being quietly frustrated. And this is better than where you were before. Because before, if you were or you still are outwardly speaking to people or your actions are harsh and aggressive, you're creating all kinds of unwholesome results here. Because by putting speech into the world that is harmful to others, that's going to come back to you. Or by putting harmful bodily actions into the world and harming others through your bodily actions, that's going to come back to you. So that's what we were doing in the past before we were on this path. But now being on this path, we've kind of 
almost put like a roadblock or like a dam in the way that as soon as the anger arises or the frustration arises or the impatience arise, we know that's us and we just be quiet and we don't say anything and we just kind of deal with those feelings on our own. And this is actually cutting down your unwholesome gamma because you're no longer putting out harsh speech or argumentative speech. You're no longer putting out bodily actions that's causing harm that's going to ultimately come back to you. But now you're just dealing with that internal struggle that there's still frustration arising, there's still anger arising, there's still impatience arising. But then because you're going internal and you're starting to notice more and more that it's coming from your craving, desire, attachments, as you do, you start getting more aware of those bodily sensations. And when you do, you start cutting it off sooner and sooner and sooner and sooner. And that's where you obliterate it at the stump. And eventually, when you start cutting it off so soon like that, then eventually you get to the point where the craving, desire, attachments have been eliminated from the mind. And now the frustration won't arise at all. So there's kind of like this gradual progression where you go from being outwardly frustrated to quietly frustrated to kind of spurts of frustration to long gaps of peacefulness and calmness with a spurt of frustration here and there till eventually you get these three months, six months, a year where the mind hasn't experienced any frustration, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, none of that stuff whatsoever. And it's like, oh, wow, like this stuff has really worked for me. And then what you'll notice is because you're no longer putting harm into the world, you're no longer talking to your partner or your kids or your parents or your boss or your coworkers or your friends, your brothers and sisters in a harsh way. And you've been not talking to them that way for a year or two. What you'll notice is slowly they will observe this about you and they will potentially stop talking to you that way. And if they don't, if it goes for a really long period of time where they're still talking aggressive to you, you might just choose that this friend that was once a really good friend of yours, or you considered him a good friend, their speech is so unwholesome and they're so aggressive with you, you might choose to kind of move on and no longer have a relationship with this person. Not that you're judging them, not that you're thinking badly of them, not that you're looking down on them, but you're just choosing not to involve that in your life because that harshness and that unwholesomeness is going to influence your mind and you're just choosing to move past it. So this is a natural progression of how you clean up your mind, your own mind, and then you clean up the results of what's going on around you by you no longer putting out harm into the world. Less and less harm will come to you but there's some relationships where people aren't going to change because they're not interested in that. And you might just choose to no longer associate with that person. And that's okay. Just remain with loving kindness and compassion and realize that, you know, you're just choosing not to be around that type of harshness or if they're lying or stealing or doing other things like this, it's not a good idea to associate with that kind of conduct. That's a great illustration, I feel like, of the path and also of the effects of our actions and comma and also the importance of patience and the gradual nature that all this develops in the path. Yeah, and this is why the Buddha talks about seclusion. 
So what happens is when we're not on this path, we're just running around, knocking down trees, burning up the forest, you know, all our speech, our actions. We, we don't know what we're doing. We're like a, a kid in a candy store, just knocking things over like crazy. But then we start getting on this path and we start getting this wisdom. We're like, oh, all these problems, I've been causing them and I can fix them. And what you'll notice is that your circle of friends or people that you consider that you might spend time with shrinks. It gets really, really small to the point where it might just be you and your partner and that's it. Or you, your partner and your kids. And you really don't spend time with anyone else around you whatsoever because you almost like don't relate to them. You're not even interested in being around all the harshness and aggressiveness. And the Buddha calls this seclusion where you go down to a really core minimalistic type relationships with people. And like I said, it might just be one, two, three, four people, just the kind of essential people. Well, you do that and you work on your own mind for an extended period of time, you know, six months, a year, two years, and you're transforming your mind. But during that time, you're not interacting with other people. So therefore, you're not causing harm to anyone. You're only interacting with just such a small group of people, just really, really small. And now you're working on this mind, you're transforming your own mind, you're, because you're not spending so much time with other people, you have more time for meditation, you have more time for studying the teachings, putting them into practice, you're practicing with your, maybe your life partner, with your children, you maybe have a couple of coworkers that you spend time with, but it's pretty limited. The Buddha calls this seclusion. Then after several years of really working with these teachings and really getting good at it, and noticing the condition of your mind changing and improving, then you might kind of gradually step out into the world and start interacting with more people because now your mind's able to do that. Where before, the harshness and aggressiveness of other people maybe hurt you and it caused painful feelings and you weren't interested in being around it because of that. So you kind of shrink and go internal and you kind of block out people, maybe even with aversion. You kind of block people out and put walls between you and them. But then once you train your mind and you realize that you've now been able to train your mind to the point where other people's speech and actions don't bother you because you've eliminated the craving, desire, attachments that are causing your mind to be discontent. Now, when you step out in the world, even if people are impolite or unkind or unfriendly or disrespectful, it doesn't bother you. You still might prefer not to be around those people, but it doesn't hurt your mind because your mind is now protected. This is what the Buddha talks about, about going to the Buddha, his teachings in the community for refuge. When you go to refuge for something, you're going for protection. And when you train the mind in the Buddhist teachings, your mind is then protected by anything unwholesome that's happening in the world because you deeply understand these teachings and you're deeply practicing where nothing can shake up your mind. It doesn't matter what's going on around you. Your mind is never shaken up. It's calm. It's steady. It's peaceful. Your mind is fully protected by the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, or the Buddha, his teachings in the community. Those people aren't protecting it for you, but because you had confidence in the Buddha, because you had access to his teachings and you practiced them well and you had confidence in them, and you went to the community of people to gain help and exposure and progress on this path, 
your mind has now been so well trained that it's no longer affected by anything that's going on in the world because you've now let go and it no longer causes and creates these painful feelings in the mind. And now your mind is fully protected and you'll no longer experience any discontentedness as the mind moves closer and closer into that. So you might notice that your life is kind of shrunk down and got into just kind of just a handful of people. And that's very normal for someone who's on this path. The Buddha calls it seclusion or isolation. And then after you train for a really long time, then it kind of expands back out. I refer to it like a bow tie, that when we were off this path, our life was kind of wide open. And then we kind of shrink down into the knot of the bow tie. We work on our own mind. We get more trained. We get rid of this pollution. And then we kind of step back out in the world and kind of expand our ability to interact with all people without being affected by what other people say or do. I have one other question, David. We just did a class on the ego and concept of non-self on Sunday. And you mentioned that there's a specific meditation for non-self. But I was also wondering, can breathing mindfulness meditation help one experience or feel non-self, essentially? Breathing mindfulness meditation is a foundation in order to get you to the point where the mind's ready to let go of the self. Because all those 10 fetters and a whole lot of other things too, but the 10 fetters the mind's holding on to them so tightly, that personal existence view. The mind's holding on to that permanent self, thinking there's a permanent self, or doubt about the teaching, or wrong grasp of behavior and observances, or sensual desires. The mind's holding on to those really tightly, or ill will. Those are the first five fetters in order to get through to the at least the third stage of enlightenment. So all of these fetters, including the higher fetters, the mind is holding on to them so tightly. So what all of this other work is doing, the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, having this well-developed breathing mindfulness meditation practice is it's essentially softening up the mind and getting it prepared to let go of the self, for example. The same thing with loving kindness that's helping to soften up any kind of ill will a mental object of ill will that's deeply rooted in the mind loving kindness meditation is helping to soften that up that then as you put together all these other teachings and you're practicing on a daily basis meditation but then also the whole path outside of meditation then your mind is more prepared to let go of things like the self so there are some people who won't need that meditation that I teach on realization of non-self, that yes, they can just use the two primary meditations that the Buddha taught, which is breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation, and that will help them to realize non-self. But there's a lot of work outside of meditation that someone has to do in order to realize non-self. And that's why I gave all of those other guidance on Sunday about sleeping on the floor and saying thank you and being respectful and appreciative to people. Talked about how to change your language and how to kind of disassociate with the self and mind, 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 and all these other things. So breathing mindfulness meditation is helping you to do that. And if you remember back to the Eightfold Path, 
on the second step, which is right intention, there's three aspects to right intention. The first one is the intention of relinquishment. The second one is the intention of non-ill will. And then the third one is the intention of harmlessness. That first aspect of right intention, which is intention of relinquishment, that is letting go. The mind has to be trained and has to be ready. It has to be willing to let go because this is the whole problem with the unenlightened mind is it's holding on to everything so tightly, not just the self, but our relationships, our pets, our clothes, our vehicles, our job, our house, so many different things the mind's holding on to. So part of that right intention, while we think about it mostly in terms of non-ill will, or another way to say that is loving kindness, or the third aspect is the intention of harmlessness, not being interested to harm others because any harm will come back to us. It's important that you also set in the mind as part of your intention that you're going to need to let go. You're going to need to relinquish a lot of things in the mind. Oftentimes people think that an attachment is a physical object like, okay, I have to get rid of this phone or people think they have to get rid of their children or they have to get rid of their pets or they have to get rid of their partner because the Buddha wasn't married after he went into homelessness and attained enlightenment. So people think they have to no longer be married or no longer have a boyfriend or girlfriend. That's actually not true. It's not the object itself that is the craving, desire, attachment. It's the way that the mind relates to it, the way the mind is longing with a strong eagerness to that object. So that's what we're working on eliminating with breathing mindfulness meditation, the way the mind lurches or longs or yearns for something and wants to hold on to it. And then by cutting that off and letting it go in meditation, the mind gets better and better at letting go and having this intention of relinquishment. And then all this preliminary work that you're doing with breathing mindfulness meditation and along the whole path, as you start observing the jhanas and you're noticing the mind is moving in there, that's why that's the point to start focusing on letting go of the self. Because if somebody was to start trying to let go of the self within the first month or two of this path, they wouldn't be successful because the mind is holding on so tightly to so many things it's not ready or willing to let go of the self. It doesn't even understand what that is yet. So there's all these other pieces that you're building. It's almost like building a house with a foundation, the walls, the inner walls, the rafters, the peak, the shingles, and just really making your house more and more stable, which is this mind, making it more and more steady and stable. So the direct answer is yes, breathing mindfulness meditation is helping to ultimately eliminate the self, eliminate conceit, and eliminate the ego entirely. That's what the whole ego is. But there's so many other pieces that are part of it. And this is why, like some of you guys might notice in the Facebook group every once in a while, somebody would just ask me kind of a random question that hasn't been studying very deeply. And sometimes it's very challenging to try to explain that one answer to them because the Buddhist teachings is a comprehensive practice. You know, you can't just say, oh, how do I eliminate stress? What, what did the Buddha recommend to eliminate stress? Well, the whole path to enlightenment. 
<laughs> That's what he recommended, the entire path. Uh, can you explain that to me? Uh, how many years do you have to, to dedicate to this? Because it's going to take years for you to understand it. But here's somebody in a Facebook group who's just starting out. You know, they have great intentions. They are interested in learning how to eliminate stress. And they're perhaps thinking that one little Facebook comment is going to be able to do that for them. But that's not the way these teachings work. Is It's an entire comprehensive program from beginning to end of putting this all together and developing your life practice more and more and more over the course of multiple months and years. And that's where the self is then ready to let go, the conceit is ready to let go, and you can dissolve that ego along with all the other fetters. Yes, it seems like society's conditioned us to look for quick fixes oftentimes, and one of the important things to learn as we begin this path is that there is no quick fix to these issues of the mind. Yeah, you know, society has kind of conditioned our mind to think, oh, you're having a stress? Take this pill, that'll solve it. Oh, you're having anxiety? Take this pill, that'll solve it. Oh, you're having sadness? Take this pill. But those pills don't ever work. They're not a permanent solution. They're not going to fix the mind. So what we have to come to understand is that these problems of the mind, they're deeply rooted They've been there for many, many, many lifetimes, and it's not going to be a one day, one week, one month, even one year fix. You know, even the Buddha, it took him six years to fix his mind. But the beauty is, is that all of this discontentedness, all of the unskillful, unwholesome things really comes back to just three main problems, craving, anger, and ignorance. There's the 10 fetters under that, which is giving us more detail, but it's craving, anger, and ignorance, every single problem that we're encountering, every single challenge. And this is why there's not 100 meditations, one meditation for stress, one for anxiety, one for anger, one for boredom, one for loneliness, you know, one for this. That's why there's not 100 different meditations that the Buddha taught. He only taught two primary meditations and then two additional, which are kind of used in special cases. Those are the only ones that he taught because once you eliminate craving, desire, attachment in the mind, that's taking care of all the discontentedness, all the stress, all the anxiety, all the loneliness, all the boredom, all the sadness, all the anger. So it's not like there's an individual pill for every single thing. There's just this core path and when you understand it really really well and you just soak your mind in it little by little each day progressing you're going to see results and it's a beautiful thing that you don't have to go out and learn a hundred different meditations you just stay dedicated to really deepening for example this one breathing mindfulness meditation which is the primary meditation that the buddha always came back to he always stressed the importance of this one meditation and he talked about it extensively in order to make sure people deeply understood that this is the primary practice right here that plugs into all the other teachings on the Eightfold Path. But in terms of meditation, this is the one that people should focus the most time and effort into. And then ensuring that they're including loving kindness in order to eradicate any of that anger, hatred or ill will. Thank you, David. We have a question on YouTube now from Tricia. Hello, David. The chant that you do before we start meditation, 
I have seen it written before on other platforms or books, but in ours, it is written differently. Does this matter? Or is it just pronunciation? Or is this different meaning? Yeah, so, Tricia, you probably understand why it's written differently from one book to another, right? Because of the universal truth of impermanence, right? So each teacher is going to represent it a little bit differently. But also, these chants, they're in the Pali language, but from each region to region, they're pronounced a little bit different, like a different dialect. They're very similar. So someone in Thailand, someone in Sri Lanka, someone in India, someone in Bhutan, someone somewhere else, anybody who's chanting these chants, they can all chant together, but there's going to be a slight variation in the pronunciation because of the different dialect, just like English. English is spoken differently all over the world. There's slight differences. So you're going to see that in the chants because of the universal truth of impermanence. The way that I represent the chants and the way that I chant is based on my involvement in the Thai community. So I pronounce them very Thai in a very Thai way. But if you are in another community, you'll hear them pronounced just slightly different or they might be represented with English characters slightly different. I wrote it out based on the way that I hear it and the way that I chant it. It's the same chants though. The Arahang Sama Samputasa, the Natmotasa, the Itipiso, these are all the same. You'll just see them written out differently because of impermanence. Thank you, David. Let's go to Manal now, who has a question. Hi, teacher David. Um, lots of valuable points that you make today. And um, the point about um, having an experience of uh, seclusion and that being um, a time where you go more inward and then by the time you face external experiences again, um, it's understood that you might have a better, a better take on, um, you know, what your cravings are and what, um, what sort of, um, what lies beneath um, some of the things that you had been doing when you were interacting with the outside world. Um, a lot of the a lot of um, the COVID times which we've had in the past fifteen months, uh, it almost felt like a period of seclusion, and um, uh, for myself at least, uh, because we were limited in interacting with the outside world, um, even going to local shops. Um, you know, we were not allowed to go outside, and it was just ourselves and our immediate family. Uh, so I did take the opportunity to use that time and to uh, discover the true meaning behind the teaching. And um, and it took a lot of um, effort and energy into that, actually. Uh, most recently, a lot of the, um, you know, basically COVID restrictions are being lifted here where I live. And um, there's, again, this renewed sense of uh, things going back to a supposed normal, interacting with the external world. And lately I have realized that there's um, an overstimulation that I, I experience mm -hmm. and it's still grounded in um, some reflecting on what, what is happening and understanding, you know, where, where my um, what thoughts are arising and perhaps linked to which conditions of the mind. But um, going back to experiencing things feels like there's a little bit of trepidation. And um, 
And there's also a sense of guilt when I realize that uh, the experiences which do happen and interacting with the outside world, um, you know, I come back home and I realize that there are some old habits that haven't flaked off. And, um, you know, I, I do, I carry a little bit of, hey, you know, like, where did that happen? It's a little bit of guilt there. Do you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, this is the mind craving to be somewhere that you're not, right? You're a work in progress. And when you see that you maybe haven't practiced right speech in the way that you would have liked to, or you didn't practice right action in the way that you would have liked to, the mind wants to practice right speech this way, or it wants to practice right action in this way. And because of that want, that craving, that desire, that's why it's producing the guilt. But what you've got to do is you've got to do what the language that I used first is that you would like to practice right speech. You have an interest to practice right speech. You're aspiring to practice right speech. You're making an effort to practice right speech. And when you do, okay, great. You've done that well. But when you maybe fall short of practicing right speech, you look at that 10, 15, 20% of where you didn't quite get to where you would like to be, and then you aim to do better next time. Rather than feel guilty about what you just did, that's in the past now. See, that's the mind holding on to the past. Not only do you want to be better than where you are, but also even though that event just happened an hour ago or 30 minutes ago, your mind is still holding on to it. You've got to realize, okay, that's in the past. Now I'm in the present moment. I realize that I could have done better. And now let me reflect on this and how I can aim to do better in the future. And now you work at that and you work at that and you work at that. And it's going to take you many months and many years to really perfect it. And you're right that in the COVID times, going down into seclusion and having less interaction is really helpful for a lot of people around the world. And now when you step back out into the world, there's that impermanence that some people are having that trepidation that you talked about. But as you do, if you notice that you're not practicing the way that you would like to practice, make sure you think of it as a like or as an interest or as an aim or as an aspiration rather than I want to be perfect today. Realize the goal is to improve over a consistent period of time. So as long as you have that desire, that craving to be perfect today when you're not perfect, it's going to produce guilt. And that's the discontentedness. And that's telling you, that's the red light. That's telling you that there's some craving, desire, attachment there. And based on what you're sharing, it sounds like there's a craving, desire, attachment to being perfect today. And that's just not where you're at today. And you've instead just got to look at what you did and aim to do better, reflect on that, and make sure that in your future conversations, for example, with right speech that you just aim to do better and that you get better and better and work on it little by little. Like I've talked about before, like a sculpture, you know, you're sculpting like the perfect Manal, right? And some days, you know, you're in there with the tool and you're working really good and the sculpture comes out beautiful and you can get those eyelashes in there and everything's looking wonderful. Other days, it feels like you're in there with a hammer or a jackhammer and you're you know, kind of like you're not really able to execute in creating this sculpture 
in the way that you would really have liked to. But you've got to make it as a like and an interest rather than a want or a desire because that's going to produce discontentedness if you think of it that way. Yes, understood. And I believe um, there's, a, well, experience has shown that um, much of the reflection, you know, past year of self-reflection self that I've, um, I have tried to do for myself, um, it's one of the first times in my life that I've actually taken that seriously for my own personal growth and inner growth. Um, and much of my catalyst for um, achieving or uh, having a healthy goal for any change is uh, directly what has been directly related to how this impacts or what my action, how it may impact the loved ones nearest to me. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I may, may be concerned over where um, my personal growth um, has uh, where I am right now in this past year, what what that means today in my actions and my speech today. Um, but I relate my progress not so much to where I could have been or where I should be. I more or less am focused on how is it that I am treating others? How is it that I am caring for others? And in, um, in recent time, recent past week, um, I realized uh, with a lot of activity you know, it's happening in this in this um, end of the school year, graduation time frame for my family, um, that there was unhappiness, there was discontentedness, there was um, frustration, there was annoyances, and um, and I recognized that um, some people in my family were not happy with my speech or my action, and so I immediately recognized that you know I. Um, I need to still work on a lot of things for myself. So the catalyst is absolutely to investigate where I can go further in for myself and where I'm still attached to things. Um, it's interesting though for, for my own sort of, hey, my brain signals what's happening when I see my loved one, the loved ones that I live with, when when they come back to me with, uh, you know, how how they feel about what I did or what I said, like sometimes it's almost like a mirror, um, you know, response of what they see because sometimes I cannot see for myself. What's your meditation like, Manal? Are you meditating two or three times a day, thirty minutes a session? I'm not doing that. I probably do once a day at this point. Okay, this is a big part of it because all of this ties together, right? If we understand right speech intellectually and we reflect on it and we're like, yeah, you know, those five factors that the Buddha shared are right on. In order to move it into practice, you've got to not only know intellectually, know what the teachings are and reflect on them knowing that they're good, but in order to be able to practice them, you have to put together with it the meditation. And that's where all of this feeds on each other. So when things get really fast and sped up in our life, that's when the mind is moving, being more active, it's going to have a tendency to revert to old habits. Whereas if you're using meditation to slow the mind down and really train it and get rid of the defilements or get rid of the pollution, then you're going to be more able in the moment to practice something like right speech. And one of the things that's hard for people 
is they think that meditation almost takes too much time in their life. They're like, ah, oh, you know, it's just too much time. But you know what's a lot of time? A lot of time is like when we do say or do something that's unwholesome and having to clean up the mess and having to clean up our relationships with our children and our life partner and our coworkers and realizing that we're kind of plowing down all the trees and burning up the forest. Instead, we can kind of get ahead of the curve on this by dedicating more sessions and dedicating more time to our meditation. Then when we're in daily life and we're practicing the teachings better, then we're doing all wholesome things and there's nothing to clean up. It's just one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. So where people get really busy in the household life, they make themselves very busy and they tend to not spend time doing the meditation. And that's kind of like the first thing that gets set to the side when things get really busy. But what I suggest is when things are really busy, that's when we need to be meditating the most because we really need that on board in order to ensure that we're only producing wholesome speech, for example. And that's actually going to make us more effective and it's going to make it so we don't have to clean up a bunch of stuff. And this is going to result in more wholesome outcomes. And while it may take you an extra 20 or 30 minutes a day to do that extra meditation, it's going to save you a lot of heartache and a lot of difficulties in your relationships. Completely agree with you. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I think that's a very timely question by Manal for, because for a lot of us have been studying the teachings over the last year and have experienced that seclusion. And on some level, we have this expectation that we're going to go back into the world and immediately be able to put all these teachings into practice. But it is a gradual process and there is a difference between intellectually understanding the teachings and then putting them in practice. So I think that's, that's very accurate to point out. Yeah, this is one of the reasons why seclusion is so helpful of like, if you can just get really good at having right speech, like since I know Manal and her family is like with your husband and with your children, and you can just get really, really good at that. And, and maybe your coworkers and, and that's kind of like those three, four, five people, maybe your parents are only, the only people you're interacting with for an extended period of time. And you just constantly work on getting right speech in every single conversation and really kind of limiting your conversations and having very individual, very focused conversations rather than having so many conversations with so many people where the mind is just so overactive and so busy by going into seclusion and just having a very limited number of people who you're interacting with and practicing with. This helps you to get really, really good at honing right speech, for example. And then you add kind of a friend. And now you kind of expand your circle just to one person. And then you get really good at that over a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And then you can add a few more people. And this is how you gradually expand your practice because one of the other challenging parts of this path, I think, is that once you do all this inner work and you deeply understand these teachings and you've trained your mind really, really well, is now stepping out into a world that doesn't understand these teachings at all. Everywhere you go, everywhere you interact, whether it's in Facebook groups or in some communities, people blame you for making them angry or, you know, people just get so hot headed over the simplest little things or, you know, they're going to block you and have aversion to you just because of the way we might look or the way we might talk. And, you know, here in Thailand, there's a lot of people who 
understand these teachings. So it's very easy to interact with people outside here in Thailand. But when I get online, for example, it's a completely different world where people are just blaming each other. They're being sarcastic with each other. They're being very harsh with each other and aversion and kind of blocking people out. And this can be really challenging in a community not just online, but in daily life in your various countries, because I know pretty much all of you guys aren't living in a Buddhist country. So when you go outside, you see a bunch of harshness and a bunch of aggressiveness, a bunch of anger and probably hatred and racism and different things like this. And that gives a case even more for training your mind so it can be protected from that stuff. But at the same time, as you go out into the world and you start interacting with people, it can be very challenging because your mind deeply understands these teachings, but others don't. And you'll probably find it somewhat challenging to have friends and have people around you that are of the same thinking, that they're not interested in speaking harshly and impolite and aggressively with people people that are willing to take responsibility for their emotions and see that they're producing their own feelings. The common thing in the world is people blame others for their feelings and that's just not how it works. And when you enter into the world, even with limited friends, you might find it a bit challenging to interact with people who have a completely different thinking than from where you're coming from. But you can get to a point where your mind is protected from that. Even here in Thailand, you know, there's a certain expat community of people who are from other countries. And while when I go outside, you know, Thai people are very friendly, very polite, very kind. People are accepting responsibility for their own speech and actions. There's occasions where, you know, I'll be at immigration and getting a stamp in my passport and I'll just have pulled away from the window and I'm just on my motorbike putting on a jacket or a helmet and someone's honking their horn. And I look back and, you know, it's some expat from somewhere else in the world. But your mind is protected from that when you see that. But what you know is you know that this is that person causing their own discontentedness. They're impatient. But them in their mind, they have the most angry face thinking that I'm the problem because they could have just gone around, for example, and continued, but they just felt like I'm the problem and they have to lay on their horn in order to get me out of their way. So I know that these kind of things happen in America when I was living there all the time. So when you work on your mind really deeply, it's good to have a limited number of people who you can really practice with closely, like your husband, your children, your parents, and maybe, you know, some very, very close friends and just do that for an extended period of time. And then as you feel comfortable, you know, add one friend or two friends or something like this and get comfortable practicing with those people. You know, oftentimes we're taught that how good of a person we are is determined by how many friends we have. I know growing up, people always wanted to have 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 friends. And the more friends you had, somehow you're more worthy or you're a better person. But what we tend to realize as we get older is it's not about the quantity of friends we have, it's about the quality, 
right? It's about the quality of the relationships that we have. And when you have just a select number of people as you're kind of re-emerging into the world and you're practicing these teachings, that can help you to kind of get your feet under you and learn how to interact with people who aren't on this path because it's very different interacting with someone who's not on this path versus someone who is on this path. Yes, David, it does seem like one of the bigger challenges a lot of us have is not attaching to the behaviors of other people and not having expectations that others are going to abide in the same way that one on the path would. Yeah, what I suggest for you guys is whenever you observe any unwholesomeness from other people is that you just always keep in mind this is their lack of wisdom, their lack of moral conduct, their lack of mental discipline, rather than taking it to heart and thinking like you did something to cause them to lay on the horn. Just realize that this is their lack of wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline, not realizing that they are actually causing themselves harm. For a person like that, they're not just that way with you. They're that way with everyone in their life, and they're having a really difficult life. And you are just the one hurdle out of a hundred that were in their life that day, and they're just being harsh or aggressive or vindictive or jealous or resentful or impatient with you. And as you know, you can't cause somebody else to be discontent. Only they can cause it themselves. You know that, but they don't know that. They think that you're the source of their problem. And this is where you need to become very skillful, first of all, to maintain your own stability of mind and not become discontent because of somebody else's lack of wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. But then also being very skillful to kind of move past the situation and get away from it. Here in Thailand, the road system, there's lots of U-turns where in America, there's lots of intersections. There's lots of traffic lights and people come to an intersection it's, and then you stop or you go through the light. And there's a lot of confrontation in society when I was in America. There's a lot of confrontation. Everybody feels like they need to confront each other and they need to kind of impose their expectations on others. Where here in Thailand, people don't do that. There's not judgment. There's not confrontation. There's not people imposing their expectations on you. And I look at the road system because the way that the road systems are set up is based on how the people think. Thailand, you know, they have these U-turns where it's like, okay, you come up to a road and you need to get around something, a problem, you just U-turn. You just U-turn. You just, it keeps the traffic flowing, but it's the way that the mind thinks is so that when you encounter somebody in your country who's aggressive or harsh or vindictive or has ego or conceits or whatever, you don't have to confront that person and tell them that they're having ego or tell them that they have ill will. You can just observe their ill will, observe their conceit, and just choose to go around it and just go past it and kind of ignoring it. Uh, because you're not there to teach everybody a lesson. You're not there to fix the world. You're not there to fix everybody else. That's their own job. Their own moral conduct, their own mental discipline, their own lack of wisdom is affecting them. And you don't allow it to affect you by just doing these U-turns or just kind of going around it. And this is the way that you stay clean. The Buddha talked about this 
about a snake. He was saying how that a snake that moves through feces, if you come close to the snake, it might not bite you, but it's still going to smear you with feces. In other words, you know, you're still going to get impacted by this smearing of a snake who's gone through feces. It might not bite you, but you're still going to get smeared. So the idea is, is that when you see this unwholesomeness, this feces, this snake smeared with feces coming at you, you just kind of go around it and stay away from it so that you don't get smeared with that feces. So if you see someone who's angered, ill will, aggressive, harsh, rather than going and confronting them or trying to fix the situation or proving a point to them or teaching them a lesson, just go away from it because you get around that person who's hot-headed and aggressive, who knows what they might do. You're going to get either bitten or you're going to get smeared with feces and it's just better to do a U-turn and just stay away from it. Teacher David, I find I have periods of sadness from time to time. And if I try to investigate where it is coming from, it makes me even more sad, dredging up past sorrows. Must I just get through it, let it go? Or can you advise another skillful way to address the sadness? Yeah, this is what I call kind of uh, kicking up the dust, right? Like what we've been doing our whole life before we were on this path, and even maybe some while we're on the path, is we've just been sweeping the dust under the carpet because we didn't know any better. We didn't know what was going on. We didn't know the problems of craving anger and ignorance. So we were just sweeping all this dust under the carpet all these years. And then now that you're on this path and you're starting to understand the problems and the problems are all in your own mind, it's like pulling back the carpet and all the dust flies up in the air. Well, the goal is to get all the dust out of this house. That's the goal. But it's going to take a long time to do that because we've been piling up this dust for a long time. So when you start investigating this pile of dust, there's going to be more dust that gets kicked back up. And since you didn't deal with it in the past, you just buried it and swept it under the carpet. What you're going to have to do is you're going to have to deal with it. There's going to be a certain amount of kicking up of the dust in order to get it out of the house. And you're, you're going to go through periods of time where the dust is in your eyes, it's in your nose, it's getting in your ears, you can taste it in your mouth. Or in other words, you're going to feel more and more sadness as you're diving in and, and really digging into what's in the mind and has been buried for so long. But the difference between what you're doing in the past to what you're doing now. In the past, you were just sweeping it underneath the carpet, sequestering it pushing it down and this mountain kept getting bigger and bigger. Now what you're doing is you're actually dealing with it and you're clearing it out. You're letting it go. You're meditating. You're learning the teachings. You're clearing it out of the mind once and for all. You're no longer burying it. And sometimes that mountain is so tall with dust, things that we buried, that you can only kind of take a small sliver off the top of the mountain right now. And that's all the strength that you have. And you just deal with those little slivers little by little. But as you strengthen your practice and you get better with meditation and you get better with the Eiffel Path, you engage with your teacher, schedule appointments with me to talk regularly so I can help you with some of the challenges that you're facing. As you get stronger and stronger, you'll be able to deal with more and more of the mountain of dust 
at one time. And then eventually you'll be able to clear this out once and for all, and you'll no longer shove the dust under the carpet because you know what that leads to. In the past, we didn't know. We just thought this was the right thing to just bury it. We didn't really have the skills. We didn't have the wisdom. We didn't have the understanding of how to deal with it. So we just buried it. But now you're getting the skills and you can get more skills by reaching out for help and scheduling personal guidance. And now as you get the skills, you can just clear that out once and for all. And over time, the condition of the mind will be less and less burdened because you no longer are burying this dust under the carpet. Thank you, David. That's all we have for today. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining. And on Sunday, we're going to be doing the talk on chapter 17, which is eliminating fears. Are you really scared? This is some unique information about how to eliminate the actual fears. Gautama Buddha's teachings, while I'm sure during his lifetime, he taught how to eliminate fears, what we've got in the teachings 2,500 years later there's not details in there about exactly how to eliminate the fears. But for somebody who's on this path, somebody who's done this work, we know how to eliminate the fears. So even though in the Buddhist teachings, it talks about eliminating fears, but it doesn't actually say how to do it. And I'm sure he taught it during his life, but it's just not something that we've gotten 2,500 years later. So in this chapter 17, I talk about how to eliminate fears. And on Sunday, I'm going to explain it to you what the real problem is, is that's producing the fear and then how to actually eliminate it. Because oftentimes part of this dust that we were just talking about that accumulates under the carpet is all these fears, all these silly fears that once we come in contact with something that we fear, the mind produces this fear and the mind's discontent and it's uncalm, it's unwell. It's shaken up. It's unsteady. And when you clear out these fears, when you clear out the things that are causing the fears, when you clean up that conditioning, you get that dust out of the mind, then the mind will no longer experience fears related to those things. So therefore, the mind can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it no longer has fear. So in addition to all the other discontentedness that we've talked about, I created this chapter because fears are oftentimes very deeply embedded and we work with them in a different way than some of the other things. All the other things that we've talked about are important to lead up to eliminating fears, but there's some very specific things that we do above and beyond what I've already taught you guys in order to eliminate the fear. So we're going to talk about that on Sunday. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation again. So have a lovely rest of your day and take care. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.